I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. It's time to talk about art, and I'm joined by my my very first travel partner, Gene Openshaw. Gene's an art historian. He's a tour guide for 30 years now. Gene went with me on my first trip back in the 70s, and we're going to talk about how a tour guide can help their travelers better appreciate the art of Europe in their travels. Gene, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Gene, I was just thinking as as we were preparing for this interview, our first trip was back in 73. We were teenagers, and we went over there. I, I forget exactly, but probably had more beer and girls on our mind than uh, <laughs> Michelangelo's and Raphael's. But think back on that first trip. What, what, what art memories do you have on our Europe through the gutter trip? David. Michelangelo's David. I'd put that very, very strong, made a big impact. Just the sheer size of it. You know, you and I were, we grew up in the suburbs. We didn't have an art education. We sure didn't go over to Europe, you know, in order to go see museums and and do all that. And so when you walk into David, I don't think anyone could walk out of there without it making an impression on him. He's 14 feet tall, made out of gleaming white marble. And there's a simplicity and dignity to that. It was striking even to 18-year-old kids running around Europe. Exactly. You know, we use that as an iconic image in a book that we wrote. And that's something that most travelers that I've worked with as a tour guide, they come away with that. They go in there with high expectations of what it is, but David rarely disappoints. So you as a tour guide for 20 or 30 years have been taking groups to these great sites. And you and I had our first experiences that way when we were kids running around Europe. Now, as a tour guide, what are your, some of your favorite, um, most rewarding moments as a teacher and a tour guide when you expose people to great art for their first time? What are some special moments that way for you? I remember leading people on a tour through the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, which is probably the best overall collection of Renaissance paintings. Wonderful collection, but this was back before they had this great reservation system, which allows you to book ahead and all that. So it was hot. It was crowded. I'm trying to herd 25 people through this, this elbowing our way through there. I thought that the whole thing was a total disaster. And then six months later, I get an email from a former tour member, and he's in Italy. And he says, you know, that Uffizi tour changed my life. He said, I'm over in Italy now. I went home. I I quit my job as an engineer. I sold my house. I told my girlfriend there was another woman involved. And the woman was Botticelli's Venus. And he ends up moving over to Italy, and he now works uh, doing a uh, kind of arts, cultural exchanges for business groups and completely reorienting his life because even in this hot and crowded museum, he stood in front of Botticelli's Venus, saw this image of a pristine goddess rising from the foam of the ocean and uh, with her hair blowing in the wind, and it changed his life. And as a tour guide, you'd be more concerned about the lines we're putting our groups through and all this sort of thing. And I guess we've got to remind ourselves, these people are having potentially life-changing experiences to stand in front of that great art. Exactly. And it's not that everyone's going to have that because there are a lot of obstacles in sightseeing yeah. to, to those kinds of epiphanies because you are on your feet. You are trying to get through lines. You are trying to get through crowds. But I've seen it happen even in those worst of circumstances. <laughs> you know, for years, I, you and I did the same route around Europe, the best of Europe in three weeks, you know, and you'd go every 
every three weeks, she'd go to the same site with a different group of people. And my my tip was just watching the face of these people when they had these oh wow moments that I knew were just around the corner. When you take people through the winding back lanes of Venice and suddenly you hit St. Mark's Square, oh, you see it yeah. come over people's faces. I've seen people <laughs> break into tears when they get there. Oh, I've broken into tears <laughs> when I got there. One lady told me, she said, her, one lady's husband passed away and she said he always wanted to be here and she got there and she just broke into tears. It was so beautiful. It's just it's just overwhelming. Climbing up the tight spiral staircase in Paris at Saint-Chapelle, oh, you go from the yeah. floor level up into this most glorious, like a jewel box of Gothic uh, architecture, right? This, this church, which is just a cathedral of stained glass. Come out of the dark, tight spiral staircase and into this glorious space. Boy, when you say space, and that that is really what to me is the art experience. I mean, you can talk about art as being paintings and statues and museums and all that, but oftentimes that is what makes the impression on people is not just the art but the place that it's in, the four walls that you encounter it in when you see it in its function and someplace like Saint-Chapelle with that stained glass, it's a it's a completely immersing experience. You're not just standing looking at it. You are inside of it. It's all around you. You know, it's interesting you mention that because uh, Gene and I, by the way, wrote this book together, Europe 101, History and Art for Travelers, after 25 years of taking groups around Europe. And we've made some new audio tours, uh, free audio tours for all the great sites in Paris, Venice, Florence, and Rome. And uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Rome trying out our new audio tour to uh, St. Peter's Basilica. And it was just a great tour, except we forgot to tell people about the space itself. And I thought, we've got to edit this audio tour to tell people to take off the earbuds and just listen to the sound of the space and to walk the whole length of the basilica and not look for this painting or that chapel or, or that statue. Uh, but, but take but just, the whole experience Just to in. be in the space, yes. to be there. And this is something a lot of people miss. I love the thought of, a, as a tour guide, taking people through the long, hot square of Piazza San Pedro and then up the long stairway and into the narthex, and then you go through those doors, and then you step into the greatest space, architecturally speaking, in Christendom, I think, St. Peter's Basilica. Yeah. It, it literally takes people's breath away when they step in there, and they see way in the distance that Baldacchino, what is it, as tall as a six-story building or something, yeah. to mark the tomb of St. Peter's and to help give the impression that the dome is not so overwhelmingly high, right? Yeah. Europe is completely three-dimensional, and you can immerse yourself in it. I'm talking with Gene Openshaw, my co-author and uh, my personal art mentor as far as art history and appreciation goes. Uh, We wrote a book called Europe 101. Gene, as a tour guide uh, and an art teacher and somebody who cares about people getting turned on by the art, what are your challenges and frustrations when it comes to having a group uh, um, get it? Um, a, a lot of it is is just the, the sheer physical obstacles of seeing some of these sites. They're often very crowded. So some of it is doing your preparation beforehand, making sure that you avoid lines and avoid crowds when you can. Some of that's just simply inevitable. You're seeing some of the great cultural treasures that you and literally millions of other people on the planet want to see and have wanted to see all their life. But if you can plan ahead so that you don't spend long times waiting in line and that you can see it at its best time when you're not surrounded by a lot of other people, that's that's a lot of the prep work in really appreciating and enjoying the art. You can go to St. Peter's and be mobbed by noisy tour groups, or you can go early or late and be all alone in front of Michelangelo's Pieta. Yeah. Or at the Uffizi Gallery or a number of other places, you can do your work ahead of time and reserve an entry time so that you can go in there. You don't have to wait in line to buy a ticket. You just breeze right in, 
because you've pre-ordered it, mm-hmm. and you get to go in with a limited number of people and enjoy it that way. And many of the most precious and fragile artistic treasures in Europe now do regulate how many people can come and go. I believe the Borghese Gallery in Rome allows 360 people every two hours. Yeah. And that's that's a drag if you have to make a reservation or be turned away, but it's a blessing if you were the well-prepared traveler that got an appointment because you're there with those incredible Bernini statues without these clamoring mobs. Yep. If you want clamoring mobs, stand in front of Mona Lisa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only painting in Europe you can hear from 100 yards away. <laughs> or smell or, with yeah, your right. fellow uh, travelers. I, yeah. can't, I can't resist it to stand back and just watch the people watching Mona Lisa. That's one of the very interesting uh, art treasures in Europe. Yeah. Talking about 1973, our 1973 trip, we had exactly one piece of artistic knowledge, I think, and that is we could tell Greek-style columns, whether they were Corinthian, Doric, or Ionic. And boy, did we get a lot of mileage out of that information. <laughs> go, hey, Gene, that's Corinthian. <laughs> yeah. betcha. I believe that one over there is Ionic. Just so people know, it, the, let's see, it goes Doric, Ionic, Corinthian. Doric is with the simple plates on top. Ionic is with the little curly cues, like ram's horns. And Corinthian is the most leafy and decorative. And the trick is, the cheap trick, as it gets fancier, as it develops over the ages, it gains syllables. Doric. Ionic, Corinthian. You know, as a guide, Gene was talking about preparing people, and this is really important because a lot of people don't have the big picture or the context to adequately appreciate what they're going to see, which might be really great. For instance, I think a Gothic cathedral, a sloppy tour guide could take people to Gothic cathedrals the whole time and never explain to them, what is the structure of Gothic? So what I like to do is, uh, one of my favorite tricks is to build a Gothic cathedral out of tourists. It takes 13 tourists to make a Gothic cathedral. You have six columns, three facing three. Each of those has a buttress, which stands, they can stand flush against the column, or they could step back one step and have arches flying in. Their arms can go up to the midsection of the the column standing in front of them, if you can envision that. Their arms would come together, four arms come together two times with those six columns to make these arches up in the sky. Those are, we'd call them arms, but they're actually ribs architecturally, right? And then you'd have the spire, the 13th person, putting his hand on the four arms coming together on his left and right and hoisting himself above the 12 tourists that make the structure of the church. And when you do that, you see the value of the pointed arches. You see the value of the buttresses to hold up the columns. You understand why the spire will push the arches down, which pushes the walls out, which means they need the buttresses pushing in. And it seems kind of silly, but you do that once, you step into a Gothic cathedral or Gothic church, and the people see all those architectural elements, and I think it's a fun sort of teaching trick so people get it when they go into the architectural triumph of the high Middle Ages. And a Gothic cathedral, those are one of the great experiences that you'll have in going to Europe. And arguably an easy-to-underrate one. A lot of people probably don't recognize that. Exactly. Most people, you know, you go into a Gothic cathedral, you look down the long nave, the long central hallway to the altar, you you follow the the columns, the thin columns up to the, the pointed arches, the praying hands of the arches up above, and you see the, the tracery, the crisscross arches up ahead, and it's all very beautiful. But once you understand that play of architectural forces, like you just explained there, suddenly it becomes more than just a... Um, shall we say, an aesthetic or a beauty type of thing, it, you, you come to appreciate the, the technology and the kinds of minds of those medieval people that could sit down with a pencil and paper, work out the math, and create these structures that were taller than anyone had seen before. That's the holistic way to appreciate it. It's more than just a show. There's some engineering brains behind it. For years, I went to the Gothic churches. I'd stand at the entryway. I'd look in, and I'd think, this is big, and this is old. 
older than anything in my <laughs> town. Then I learned a little bit about it. And actually, you step into a Gothic cathedral, excitedly nudge your partner and say, isn't this a marvelous improvement over Romanesque? <laughs> I'm talking with Gene Openshaw. We're talking European art appreciation. Thanks for being with us. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by my friend and co-author Gene Openshaw. Gene's been a tour guide for most of his adult life. Gene and I wrote a book together after years of experience taking groups through Europe in an attempt to share what we think is important so people can understand and appreciate their sightseeing. The book's called Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler. Gene, I'm just going to put you on the spot here. Right now, if you had your favorite travel partner who had never been to Europe and you could stand in one spot in Europe to be wowed by history and culture and art, where would you stand and why? Hmm. To be wowed, I would go to one of the major museums in one of the major cities in Europe. I would take the British Museum in London and take them to the room of the so-called Elgin or Elgin marbles. Those were the statues that decorated the great building that still exists in Athens, the Parthenon. And they're, they're very beautiful. You can see statues of Dionysus reclining backwards with a cup of wine in his hand. You can see charging chariots as though they were charging around the, the building of the Parthenon. Uh, you can see the Greek gods and goddesses at play and at war in these various statues and reliefs. But also there's the added element of just the fact that they are so old and that you are standing there and you are experiencing something that you're, you're traveling back in time to 500 BC when these things were made. And you're also experiencing something that people all through the centuries since then have been able to enjoy and to appreciate. So that it really, it's not just a time tunnel experience, as it were, where you're going back in time, but it's a timeless experience. And you're sharing in that same experience that all of humanity, am I getting too philosophical here, no, this is that great. all of humanity has experienced since the time of the ancient Greeks. Uh, and if that doesn't wow someone, uh, I don't know what would. But to bring out that element that for 2,500 years, people have been wowed by these this same beautiful motion carved into stone, or 2,300 years or something like that, that's really gives it an extra dimension because you have that continuity. Exactly. You kind of become part of the club of humanity that has seen this since those times. And then your travel partner says she's from Greece and she's just disgusted that these things are in London and you've messed up the whole thing. They <laughs> belong the back in Athens. the British have stolen it and you add a whole other layer, which is the very contemporary battle between contemporary United Kingdom and Greece over these precious pieces of marble. You know, the very important thing when you're trying to appreciate art is to understand the value of, uh, well, understand the context in which something was made, to stand in front of those Elgin marbles from the Parthenon, to understand the the pan-ethnic procession yeah. and what the celebration was that would have been so important to these people centuries before Christ. Uh, you can understand the context that a piece of art was made and that makes it more meaningful. And then to make it even better, you can see that art in its original setting. Exactly. The art historian term? In, in situ or in situ. in situ, on the site. With, on the site. Yeah. You know, you could show me 30 Titians hanging on a gallery in, in Paris or something. Or you could take me to a church in Venice where Titian was commissioned to do a, a great painting. To see it in situ, arguably, is better than seeing a whole bunch of them hanging on a museum wall. There's one church I particularly love in Venice because it's just a great sampling of five or six Venetian Renaissance masters with one masterpiece by each of them in one church all in situ, the Ferrari Church. The Ferrari Church. That's a great example of, of seeing some art in situ. 
rather than bulk. The Ferrari Church is a wonderful experience to start with because even just to get there is an experience because it's not on the main tourist track. So you have to actually seek it out. Like it's difficult to find. Along the way, you can follow a map, but you're almost going to have to stop people on the street and say, Dove i Chiesa di Ferrari, and try and make your way there. So just even that is wonderful. And then you step into it, and it's a beautiful Gothic church, a rare Gothic church in Venice, where most everything's crusted over with this Baroque. It's spacious, it's well lit, it's clean lines. And then you have, like you say, these, these different Madonnas by different masters hanging in various parts of the church, exactly in the place where they, where they put them. And then it's important for the average traveler to have some information. Now, this is the challenge. In a case like that, you could bring information with you, uh, anticipating this visit. You could hire a local guide outside. You could probably, I would imagine there, they have an audio tour that you could pay for right on the spot for a few bucks and listen to some curator explain it in whatever language you like. Or you could buy a book at the bookshop at that museum. One way or another, it's important for people to know that there is information available. Boy, I've just warmed up to that in the last few years. It's just the, the value of really going first class on information because these are potentially first class experiences. Uh, but uh, for a lot of people, they don't have the wherewithal to really put it all together without some kind of help. And and if there's anything that you could do, as well as getting on the spot information, if there's anything that you could do to greatly enhance the value of your trip, since you're investing a great deal of time and money into traveling over to Europe, it would be to do a little reading and research and learn something about some of the great painting masters or some of the history that you will encounter, whether you like it or not, over in Europe. And that, if there's any way that you could enhance the value of what is a fairly costly trip. Mm-hmm. A little knowledge can do that. So before your trip, you could do your recreational reading and movie going with your sightseeing in mind. I'll never forget asking a a guide at the Palace of Versailles in France, uh, what would be the best thing I could do to better appreciate Versailles? And she said, learn Greek mythology. Yeah. Because the whole thing is a celebration of uh, classical gods, not Christian. Exactly. If you knew a few Greek myths about Zeus coming down and cavorting with mortal women or about Apollo, the sun god... And along with that, knew some elements of Christian stories from the Bible and who the most famous saints were. If all you knew was that St. Peter always is shown carrying around keys, Mm -hmm. well, man, that's great. We're talking art appreciation, (laughs) guerrilla art appreciation. Any way we can, I'm joined by Gene Opensaw, the co-author of Europe 101, and our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Brian's on the phone in Los Angeles. Hi, Brian. Thanks for calling. Hey, Rick. How's it going? Great. Got a comment or a question for Gene? Yeah, a quick question. Uh, one of my best art experiences while I was in Europe was when I was studying abroad in Rome, and, and we had a sort of an art tour around the whole city, and we had popped into a few random churches, and all of a sudden, you know, we're staying in front of some great old Caravaggios. And I just wanted to ask, you know, if you had to pick what uh, some of your best hidden art experiences would be throughout Europe. Oh yeah, that's a great that's a great question. Um, hidden art. One of the things that I enjoy most about traveling through Europe is you can be in the most crowded, tourist-filled area, and you're going to find little gems right nearby that other people aren't going to be able to see. Uh, I think the Caravaggio, I think you're talking about that, that Francesi church, which is just a stone's throw from the Pantheon, yeah. which is a wonderful sight to see, and millions of tourists go there, but very few people know to pop into this very nondescript church, which is just a block away, the Francesi Church, and suddenly you've got these beautiful 
works by Caravaggio that he painted right for that thing. I can think of several others that are right near major major areas in tourist areas. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Boy, you could well, practically name a city. Well, and, Moses, uh, Moses by Michelangelo is a five-minute walk away from the Colosseum. Everybody goes to the Colosseum. Hey, hike up the hill, check out Moses uh, at St. Peter and Chains. Brian is talking about the Caravaggios. A couple of weeks ago, I was with my son Andy in Rome, and, and we dropped in on one of his classes, which imagine going to class on the streets of Rome, popping into these churches. We visited a bunch of Caravaggios uh, in that vicinity within walking distance of each other in various churches and palaces nearby. Uh, the Santa Maria del Popolo Church is free. It's just an amazing example of Renaissance and Baroque art. And St. Teresa in Ecstasy in Rome is in the middle of a big traffic street, pop into a humble little church, and there you got this incredible Bernini Multimedia statue. experience, exactly. yeah. Bronze and real light, alabaster stone, and, and he used the real light pouring through the windows to shine off this vision of the St. Teresa lying back while an angel stands there with a golden arrow about to <laughs> pierce her heart, giving her this spiritual orgasm. Can I? I don't you know can, if I can, can say this that. This is public radio. You okay. can say that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Teresa's having a great experience there. Another thing, I, Gene and I were very frustrated with the limited admission hours at the at the Vatican Museum and causing people to wait for hours, and we're almost going to give people alternative to the Vatican crowds. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a reach because the Vatican is undeniably the great art museum. But in Rome, there were so many places where you could get, you could cobble together the magic you'd see in the Vatican Museum if you just knew where to go. The great Raphael paintings on the other side of the Tiber River, the Palazzo. Right, the Palazzo Farnese, yeah, which is another example of seeing art in situ where Raphael is, is hired to paint to decorate this wealthy Roman aristocrat's home. And he paints it with these beautiful images from Greek mythology. And and, and it's outside of a church, so it's a little bit sexier. Exactly. Hey, Brian, do you have any other favorite hidden art? Uh, well, it's not quite as uh, <laughs> obscure as the Caravaggios in that uh, in that one church, but I remember I was um, walking through Toledo, and I knew nothing about Spanish art at the time, and all of a sudden popped into a random church, and I think uh, the painting was called the uh, Ascension of the Count of Orgaz. Is the that burial right? Burial of Count Orgaz, yes. Yeah, Speaking of that, Org- I mean, just reading the history behind that and hearing it from uh, actually a friend I was traveling with who was a Spanish major, and just amazing. And that's in situ right there. And the more you learn the story about that, it's a little chapel built by some rich family. They hired the big shot of the day to paint it. And centuries later, you pop in there and you go, wow, I've seen that in all the textbooks. Where are all the crowds? You just recognize it right away. Brian, thanks for your call. Thanks a lot, Rick. Pamela's on the line in Indianapolis. Hi, Pamela. Thanks for calling. Hi, Rick. And hi, Gene. Hi. Um, I have been so fortunate to visit with a lot of art in Europe. And, uh, Rick, I was absolutely thrilled to bypass a line at the Musée d'Orsay more than a block long because I had gotten the museum pass that you suggested we do. Um, By the way, that's one of the most favorite tips that we have in our books is that you can buy the museum pass in Paris at any participating museum, and almost all of them do. And then, as Pamela mentioned, you walk by the long lines. Those lines you see are not lines to get into the museums. They're lines to buy a ticket to get into the museum. If you have the pass, it pays for itself in three admissions. You save hours by not waiting in those long lines. I was was nervous walking up thinking, oh, surely they're going to stop me. (laughs) But they didn't. They just opened the door, let me walk in. And then I got to see the Moulin de Galette in the Musée d'Orsay, which was not as stunning an experience because of the setting. Um, 
do you have any suggestions in London? I have been so involved going to the theater in London that I have not taken advantage of the museums there. Do you have any great favorites in London, Rick or Jean or both? Well, I'll leap in with just one of my favorites, the Courtauld Gallery, located along the street called The Strand, oh, probably about a 15-minute walk from Trafalgar Square. So it's it's pretty accessible. And the Courtauld Gallery has, oh, maybe 15 or 20 rooms filled with some real masterpieces. And the great thing about it is it spans practically from medieval altarpieces right up to some of the most modern art. Uh, the piece that, that really struck me the most from the Courtauld Gallery is uh, a work by Vincent van Gogh that he painted. It's one of his famous self-portraits where he's got that bandage on his ear mm. that shows the aftermath of uh, the night that he goes ballistic and threatens his friend Gauguin with a knife and then, you know, in a fit of passion, cuts a piece of his ear off and gives it to a prostitute. Well, this is kind of the, the, the morning after, as it were, as he's sitting there with his big bandage on it. He obviously must have stood in front of a, a mirror and and with a canvas there, pulled out his brush, looked in the mirror and assessed the damage and said, what did I just do? And then starts to paint himself. And if my memory serves me correctly, the Courtauld Gallery is part of an art school. So the, the paintings are select and it's well lit. And in Vienna, there's the uh, Academia Gallery, I think, also, which has a select, uh, well-lit and well-described collection of art masterpieces that students can be inspired by as well as visitors. Yeah. Obviously, London has so many cultural treasures. It is truly one of the great cities on earth. But you know, when I think about the in situ wonders that you see in the Renaissance cities of Italy and so on, London, a lot of the art is uh, imported, and it's hard to see in situ art, uh, with the exception, I suppose, of Christopher Wren architecture. I mean, these mm-hmm. gems of little churches that he did around. Gene, can you think of in situ art in London? I can think of a couple of real interesting places. I'm thinking like the Sir John Soane's Museum. It's a house. It's his house. He was an architect in the 19th century. And when you go in there, it's not like you're going to see a blockbuster collection of sites, but you're actually walking through his house on Some a beautiful... rich, eccentric art collector Rich, eccentric century. art yeah. collector. And you see these little antique knickknacks and so on. And then, and then you've got a curator. You can go up into this one room. And if you ask the guy nicely, he suddenly pulls out these frames from the wall. And you can see these really nice picture paintings by Canaletto, the beautiful scenes of Venice and works by Hogarth. Not exactly world-class or top-notch, but within the setting, it makes for a, just a great experience. And you walk out of this this place thinking, boy, I wish I'd known Sir John Soane's. Mm-hmm. Connected to this, I was wondering about the in situ. I have been fortunate enough to stay in a 2,000-year-old palacio in Spain. Is there any place else around Europe besides the... Um, you know, the Spanish group of hostels and places that you can stay, the Paradors. Oh, you're talking about beds in C2. Uh, well, yeah. uh, places where they have art that would be, you know, in C2 where you are able to stay. Well, in, in Italy, I know a lot of old hotels that have peeled back their modern plaster and they reveal old frescoes. They're certainly not masterpieces, but they've frescoed mm-hmm. their places in centuries past and they reveal that, which is quite nice. Mm-hmm. You'll find in beautifully preserved towns where the government, you know, makes the point that you can't build modern buildings. You've you got no elevators and lots of stairs and well-worn uh, hallways. These were mansions by people in, in centuries past that are earning their keep today as hotels. So 
I've stayed in a hotel in Vienna that just had famous art down the hallways there. It's the where all the, the big shots stay. The tourist board put me up there once, and that was quite striking to see, you know, great 19th century art originals in the hallways. Mm-hmm. But uh, generally, you're going to, unless you're loaded, you're going to be um, seeing that in the museums. But I would say there's a lot of opportunities to have bedrooms in historic places, old convents. My favorite place in Florence is the uh, Loggetta di Serviti, which is an old uh, monastery on the square where the very first Renaissance architecture was. By the way, Pamela, you were talking about London and in situ and so on. Jean, I think St. Paul's is a good example, the great church in London, because there you see through the ages art living. Even from our generation, there's great masterpieces. We don't have enough historical perspective to know for sure. But you look at this new art in St. Paul's, and it's, it's great stuff. you got statues by Henry Moore in St. Paul's that are put there, not for tourists, but because it's part of the culture. And downstairs, you've got the uh, mausoleum or the, the tombs of all the great characters in, in English history. That place is just a wonderland of art, I would say, in situ. And you can really see the the art through the ages in places like that and see how these places are not merely museums, but they are living, you know, the, when you mentioned the Henry Moore, for example, and it's it's to commemorate the, the bombing of London during the Blitz, where St. Paul's rose as a symbol of the British withstanding the Nazi Blitz because it withstood bombs while the rest of London all around it was demolished completely and seemingly miraculously St. Paul's remained standing. And when you go in there, it's a reminder of the survival of the British people over two or 3,000 years of their history. And in that case, you're ratcheting up your art appreciation beyond what a tourist would snap through his camera, but you're seeing art made for the community for a good reason, and you're recognizing it as such. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a beautiful thing to do as a sightseer. Mm -hmm. Pamela, thanks for your call. Thank you. Who named Gothic Gothic? Because that's not a complimentary name. It's like barbarian, right, of the Goths. Exactly. Renaissance people, did they coin that name? um, They did. Just to, to label it as barbaric art. The the name of a lot of art ages might be coming from the next art age that looked upon that art as tired and old-fashioned. Or just the converse. You, know, you think about the, the British artists known as the pre-Raphaelites. Suddenly, a, a few centuries after Raphael, Raphael was considered this great artist and so on. And then suddenly they start going, well, wait a minute. What about all the people before Raphael, these, these great medieval masters? We want to follow their styles and their trends and rediscover that sort of art, and so they decided to call them the pre-Raphaelites. And from that same generation that Raphael was working on the Pope's rooms at the Vatican, Michelangelo was painting the Sistine Chapel, and that Sistine Chapel was frescoed with great art before Michelangelo got there, wasn't it? It was. And, and Michelangelo comes in and says, well, let's uh, paint over that, and I'll, just, do, I'll give it my, my version. Let's just lay 4,000 square feet of plaster up here and, and yeah, give my vision of the world. <laughs> we got Kathleen on the line in uh, Big Pine Key, Florida. Kathleen, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. What's your thought or comment with Jean here? Well, on we were just in Rome a few weeks ago, um, visiting my sister and my brother-in-law who were there at the American Academy. And I agree with the gentleman who said about the Caravaggio Church. If you just wander around by the Pantheon, you'll find it. But my other thought is there's so many other great small churches that have sculptures, especially the one my sister and I went to in Trastevere, the San Francesco Ripa. Are you familiar with that church? I don't know that one. Well, it's a small church, and it's known it was dedicated to St. Francis of Assisi because apparently he stayed there in the 1200s and the years there. And um, the best part of that church is a small chapel that has a beautiful Bernini statue 
of the Blessed Ludovica. Hmm. Wow. It's amazing. And, it's, and if you don't know it, you just kind of wander in this church, and there's this glorious, glorious statue, much like the St. Teresa in Ecstasy. It's beautiful. Again, it was commissioned by a wealthy family. Now, that's interesting because Gina and I have been taking groups and been know-it-alls for Rome, like, for 25 years, and here's a Bernini statue in a church yes, in Trastevere that we've never heard of. beautiful at the San Francesco Arippa. And the other one that's in Trastevere, the beautiful church, is the St. Cecilia, St. Cecilia, that has, again, another gorgeous statue. So it's like you say, you just need to wander around and go in the churches. And I think that St. Cecilia Church is famous because it's built on the home of a woman who courageously let the Christians worship there before Christianity was legal. Exactly. And it, again, you just kind of wander in. My only comment also is sometimes the churches are closed and you don't always know when they're open. And, you know, it's just good to go back again. Or, Kathleen, it's good to knock on doors. When I was at St. Cecilia, St. Cecilia, the upstairs gallery was closed, but I knocked on the door of the convent, and one of the sisters came out, and I gave her a couple of euros, and she took me upstairs, and there's this incredible early Renaissance frescoes upstairs that you wouldn't see if you didn't know to knock on the door of the convent. Oh, that's a great tip, because, you know, one time we went by a church, and we kind of did that. My sister has been to Rome many times, and she said, let's just try the door, and it was open, and we went in. And the other tip I want to have is when we went in the French church to see the Caravaggio's, the light wasn't working. And it was like you can't really appreciate the pictures, you know, the paintings, unless the light is on. But this wonderful gentleman who is there at the church came and fixed it, and then there we were in awe of those three beautiful Caravaggio's. Always pump coins into those light boxes. And people did dope, and it wasn't working. That was Oh, well, that's a racket. And then some people walked out, and we said, no, let's ask someone. Good for you. Look around for those light boxes, because, you know, it's the way they make a little money. It's going to the church. And uh, And it is, and it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. Especially the calling of St. Matthew. It's gorgeous. You know, speaking of hidden masterpieces, Jean, you might remember this. There's a church in Florence where there's actually a Michelangelo-carved crucifix. Yeah, Santo Spirito. Santo Spirito. I didn't even know that. I, yeah. And it's in a side chapel, and there it is, in situ. I believe that was in a museum for a while, and then there's a movement among the curators and so on to get the art back in situ. It is. And, and just as an aside, Santo Spirito has been basically closed to tourists for years and years and years, and just this year, 2008, they're opening it up. Wow. Kathleen, any other thoughts? The other thoughts are, like you say, in situ. Just wander around, whether you're in Rome or wherever, and look and see what's outside. One of our favorite little statues is the baby elephant statue on the way to the Pantheon that's at the, in front of Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, and that's a Bernini statue. With and an you, Egyptian obelisk on its exactly. back? Exactly, and you just kind of walk by it unless you look up. And there it is. And it talk about the layers of Rome, that statue. You, you can look at an Egyptian obelisk atop the Baroque elephant standing in front of a Gothic church. church. And Isn't there you have fabulous? your 3,000 years of Rome's history. And the church is named for Sopra Minerva, a, a pre-Christian temple that was literally below it as the, as the rise of Rome has happened over 2,000 years. Yes. Oh, it was just... And then, of course, topping the uh, Egyptian obelisk would be a Christian cross, symbolic of how Christianity triumphs over the whole pagan scene. And speeding by it is a 21st century Vespa. (laughs) So now you've completed the scene. (laughs) Kathleen, thanks for your call. Well, thank you very much. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Gene Openshaw, co-author of our guidebook, Europe 101, and we're talking art in Europe. 
Sherry's on the phone in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for your call. Well, thank you for talking to me, and thanks for years of help with travel. Oh, great. Um, I just wanted to comment that um, museums are absolutely wonderful. They preserve things and make collections possible for comparing and so forth. But the really intimate experiences for me have been in, in churches, probably, because there's so many different things you can look at, the frescoes, the windows, the altarpieces. And if I might tell you about one experience I had in Arezzo, Italy, we went to the um, Chiesa of San Francesco, where there's a Piero della Francesca fresco that's amazing. And we walked in, and there was a, a big scaffold up. And, of course, we were somewhat disappointed until the one restorer who was up on the scaffold painting invited us to climb it. And we were with an, a brushstroke from uh, Francesco's paintings. It was just wow. an incredible experience. There are opportunities when churches are being restored to actually go up and see the work. Or in the case of uh, Vienna, they've stumbled onto something that's actually a moneymaker for them. In the, in the Charles Church in Vienna, great Baroque church, they've got a huge restoration project going on, and tourists can come in and pay 10 bucks and ride the industrial elevator up to the top of the dome. And then when you get oh, up there really fun. close, you see how rough the fresco work is because it was never intended to be seen so close because you look at it from the bottom and it looks just fine. And you also see the strange perspective these guys have to paint. When you paint on the inside of a dome, you have to be concerned about uh, what angle are the viewers going to see it from. So you paint it all yeah. stretched out and weird so it looks right from the floor. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, Piero Francesca was kind of a master of early perspective. And it was kind of interesting to see the difference from when we stood on the floor to when we were standing inches from it. But it was it was just an incredibly wonderful experience. Another one that I had in, in Florence, where every church seems to have an incredible treasure, we stayed at a little hotel very near Santa Trinita. And in Santa Trinita, there's an altarpiece by Gerlandaio called The Adoration of the Shepherds. And it was just so serene to go in there. We would go every morning. We were the only people there. And to look at those beautiful high Renaissance faces, not only faces of people, but the faces of the animals, it, it's just wonderful to find these little treasures. I love that, Sherry, the thought that you would go every morning and enjoy the serenity and just be there with that beautiful right. high Renaissance art, I suppose like it was intended to be and like people have done for centuries. Yes, I think that's what makes it so special because you're seeing the art in the place for which it was made. With the attitude that, you know, this is one thing I think is very important because we all have our own baggage, you know. For years I would go into these Catholic churches like a good Protestant and I'd have my sword out and I'd be disgusted by all this wealth and so on. Then I learned, hey, if I just check my sword at the door and go into St. Peter's and become <laughs> a temporary Catholic, it's a much better experience and I appreciate the art for what it was intended to do. You go to St. Right. Francis Basilica and get in a Franciscan uh, frame of mind. You go to a mosque, don't judge it from a, a Christian or a Western perspective. Try to appreciate it on its perspective. Go into great synagogues all over your travels. You'll be going into holy places where the, the most talented and passionate artists have done their very best for their culture to understand and, and appreciate God through art. 
I, I totally agree, and it, it just widens our perspective and makes us much more tolerant, I the, believe. The, the one church I have a problem with is the Jesu Church, i got to say. The <laughs> Jesu Church is the uh, counter-Reformation. Rick, uh, they've got a problem with you Lutherans, <laughs> too. So <laughs> Every snake in the Jesu Church has his, a foot on him by a saint, and every <laughs> snake is supposed to be Martin Luther. <laughs> Um, If I could just add something to what Sherry said, um, when she was talking about getting to climb that scaffolding in the church in Arezzo, that's a wonderful thing, and you you certainly took an experience and took lemons and made lemonade out of that. Um, If I can just mention the restoration process and scaffolding, if you go to Europe, you will most certainly encounter somewhere in your travels one of these great iconic images you've wanted to see all your life, and you walk up there and suddenly there's scaffolding. Or it's covered, or it's under restoration, or it's been removed for, for restoration. And that's just something that travelers will always have to expect, and you're going to have to roll with it. But also remember that if you're going to continue to visit Europe and see it other times, there have been a lot of times when I've been rewarded by that. In Venice, for example, the Venice Clock Tower in St. Mark's Square, you know, right next to the big church, was covered for years and years with scaffolding as they cleaned that thing up and restored the clockworks in there. And suddenly, Last year, lo and behold, scaffolding comes down. The museum opens up, and you can actually even go up inside the clock tower and see the clockworks. So there are always going to be those kinds of elements, too. Rick, you may remember even as far back as 1973, you and I were traveling, and we go to Rome, and there's this wonderful monument known as the Arapachis, the Altar of Peace. Mm. And for decades, literally decades, that sat in this big glassed-in case with, you know, someone needed to take Windex on it and clean the thing off, and you could never get to it, you could never see it, and it just kind of sat out there. And then suddenly, lo and behold, two years ago, the thing opens up, and it's now one of the great glorious things. So if you do travel and you run into this element of scaffolding and restoration, you're just going to have to roll with it and just be glad that the people of Europe are treasuring their cultural treasures enough to be able to do this periodic cleaning so that future generations will appreciate it the way we can. And I suppose in the same vein, be mindful that your admission fee may seem a little steep, but it's very expensive to keep these huge buildings up to snuff. And, you know, they used to ask for donations for the great churches and nobody gave donations. Now they charge tourists to go into the great churches. If you're going into a great church to pray, you can always go in and pray for free. You go to a mass or a service, you can go in for free. But if you want to go to the great church all over Europe these days as a tourist, you're likely going to be paying for it as you would to go into a museum. Thomas is on the line in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Hi, Thomas. Thanks for your call. Uh, Hi, Rick. Nice to talk to you. Yeah. We've talked a lot about hidden art today, but I want to mention one of the most overlooked art museums in Europe, which is the Tyson Bornemitsa Museum in Madrid. You know, most people will go to the Prado and the Reina Sofia Museum on their short tours, but this museum is a real gem. It's right across the street from the Prado. It contains eight centuries of art because it was owned by a couple of barons. The father collected uh, classic art and the uh, son collected modern art. You can go into this gallery and in one afternoon, because it's laid out so well, you can go from uh, the 13th century, kind of wander around the halls on both floors, and you end up from early medieval art on the top floor all the way ending up with uh, Kandinsky and Liechtenstein and It's amazing because they have European art, American art. The diversity of the collection is really remarkable. And it's a shame that because of the the fame of the other two museums, and rightly so, this museum gets overlooked a lot, and it's absolutely a fantastic and has half the crowd 
of the, the Prado. Thomas, those are good comments. Thank you. I want to get Gene's take on that. Oh, it's okay. a, yeah, the Tyson or the Tyson is, is a wonderful museum. And like you say, it's, it's chronological. One of the reasons I think it's overlooked is that you could hardly name one masterpiece from it that everybody would go, oh, yeah, I know that one. But what it does have is it has minor works by major artists or major works by minor artists that give you the complete overview from medieval altarpieces right up to the most cutting-edge contemporary art. And like you say, you can view it walking downhill. You start <laughs> on the upper floor right, and, and right. go down. So it's, it's a really very wonderful collection. And you can see some of the things you won't see in the other museums in Madrid. And it's a modern, air-conditioned, uncrowded, state-of-the-art museum. I do have to say, though, the Prado is my favorite collection of paintings anywhere in Europe. Jean and I, ages ago, wrote a, a guidebook for Europe's 20 greatest museums, and we had a page count limit for each museum, but I remember we discussed this, and the Prado was the one that got the exemption. There's so much in the Prado, we had to let it be the longest chapter in the book. Yeah, you'd think that the Prado would just be strong on Spanish art, on El Greco with his very um, otherworldly saints or with Goya and his nudes, but it covers virtually everything. And that would be because Spain was run by a family that ruled a great part of Europe, right? So you had uh, the Spanish Netherlands. Consequently, the Spanish king had great art from the Netherlands in his collection. Spanish king had all the money in the world, and he liked Italian uh, art. He liked the voluptuous Italian art, right? He, he liked beautiful centerfold goddesses. So and he brought he hired Titian to paint them for him so he could stick them in his bedroom. Gene, let's talk about this just for a minute because you see a, a country today that might not be powerful like Spain or like Austria has the greatest and most diverse collections of art in a lot of ways because 400 years ago, their kings were the big shots in Europe. They had the money, they had the empire, and they could collect it all in the capital. And it certainly tells you the ups and downs of history when you go and you see what particular culture dominated at a certain time and could collect all of the great objects of that era during its time and then fade away to what we think is a small culture. Gene, fielding all these calls from these travelers and a lot of people who obviously really appreciate the art, it's clear two people can go to the same art treasure in Europe and have two different experiences depending on how they're prepared to understand it and depending on how thoughtfully they approach it. Yeah, I think art can strike like lightning and you never know where it's going to happen. It can bring plumbers to tears. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it can bring grown men to tears trying to get through these difficult museums as well. The real tragedy is if somebody goes to the Louvre and they just want to see the Mona Lisa and get out of there. And uh, from our experience, if you have a, a good attitude about it, if you prepare it a little bit and you go to the museum with some information to understand the context that the art was made in, I think it can be, as Gene and I have both learned, actually a life-changing experience. It makes you uh, appreciate that you are part of the human race when you view Paintings that were done 15,000 years ago, bulls by cavemen done on cave walls, and you can go up through the great obelisks built by the Egyptians, and you can see the great structures like the Colosseum that the Romans did, and the Greco-Roman culture, the cathedrals and castles of the Age of Faith and the Christian era, and then right up to the, the large palaces of modern European kings and bring that right up to the time of Picasso and Kandinsky and Chagall, you make that march through history and suddenly the Europe of today comes alive because you can see where these people came from. It's a form of, it's like going back to your roots. Spoken like a great tour guide. <laughs> Gene Openshaw, Gene Openshaw, co-author of Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler. Thank you very much. Thanks, Rick. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides 
take thousands of free-spirited travellers on escorted tours through Europe, one small group at a time. This year, you can choose from 36 exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe, from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free tour catalogue and Rick Steves Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour section at ricksteves.com.